I was showing Jillian my, the title of my sermon for this afternoon, and I was like, do you think that's like too big? I mean, the title is Life, Death, and the Return of Jesus. So it's a big topic. I hope I can cover it in a few minutes. <laughs> not, like, not likely. But I, I really just wanted to talk a little bit about two uh, heroes from the Bible and just kind of how they face life and death and then also um, scriptures regarding the return of Jesus. I don't know if you guys remember, but three weeks ago I did a, did a lesson that was on the first, um, first Sunday and we didn't really get to do the whole thing. So I just wanted to kind of review that and go over some of the, those scriptures related to the return of Christ. But this morning I had mentioned that um, we had been studying Joshua in our class and um, in our Sunday morning class and, we, and I wanted to start off by looking at just one phrase or thinking about one phrase from Joshua's farewell address. Um, and that is uh, when he was speaking to the nation and it was uh, Joshua 23 verse 14 is where it comes from and it says now behold today I'm going the way of all the earth so what was Joshua referring to um, the Bible tells us that Joshua was very old at this point and that he was soon going to die and when he say says he's going the way of all the all the earth I think he's just reminding us of how common death is. You know, it's, it's something that, that happens. Um, and everything that lives eventually dies. So death is, is really very common, but I think death is really still very mysterious and just something that we don't totally know about, but really death is. Uh, I think that should remind us of how common death is. Everything that lives eventually dies. Um, and I think even in this time of year, is the fall a reminder of, of death and kind of like the cycle of life that we see um, the leaves changing their colors and we see them fall to the ground and we spend a lot of time raking them up. At least I do. And they, uh, they, they, and even the trees, um, the leaves die, it seems, and the trees go dormant. They seem dead. And, but I think if the leaves remind us, if the falling leaves remind us of death, then maybe the beautiful colors of fall and those leaves should also remind us that even in death, we can glorify God and be a beautiful example to one another of how to glorify God. And it seemed to me that uh, just... We've been reading about Joshua for several weeks, the last quarter, and it just seemed to me that he had accepted that he was going to die, and he seemed to have no fear about that. He didn't, ha he didn't seem to have any regrets about, about dying. And I, I think, it, isn't that how each of us hopes that we will die, that we will um, have no fears and no regrets? And I just think it's... Um, I want us to think about that is what is the key to um, living a very full life. I think it is recognizing that it is a very precious gift from God that he allows us to live and we should enjoy life um, and at the same time somehow be able to let go of life easily and uh, move on again without fear or regret. So I just think that's a very impressive thing about the way Joshua seemed to face death and deal with it. And he did. I mean, it seemed like he had given his life to God. And he exerted his life and, ex and exhausted his life for God. Um, but he was, seemed like he was, it was, uh, that probably made it easier, easier for him to move on. Now, the other person I wanted us to look at, and that was the, you know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the, who wrote the scripture that I had just, uh, just read. Um, in just prior to that passage that we read in the first, uh, first chapter of Philippians, Jesus, uh, Paul says his ex expectation is that um, 
that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether it would be by life or by death. And that's where he then goes into that passage that we just read, and he starts that off by saying, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Um, and then he says, but I know, but if I am to live, if I am to live on in the flesh, um, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Um, so he's going to have this good work to do, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus uh, through my coming to you again. So Paul has a, has a, expresses a great attitude um, that whether he lives or dies, he really can't lose. Um, and Paul's life was so, seemed to be so wrapped up and entwined with serving Christ that continuing to live meant he got to continue to encourage and help Christians to grow in their faith, and he was able to enjoy seeing that, that fruit of his work in their lives. But if he dies, he gets to go to be with the Lord. And Paul wrote, Paul wrote Philippians from prison. Um, and we know from, all, all his, from his other writings that Paul suffered a lot. He suffered a lot physically. And we know he, he says that he felt the pressure of his concern for all the churches. Yet his life was so, his life was, he considered his life worth living uh, because of the work that the Lord had given him to do. So he enjoyed life. And at the same time, he was able to look forward to the time when he could be with the Lord. He wasn't afraid of dying. Okay? He wasn't afraid of dying. And he wasn't afraid of living. I mean, he did that and he devoted himself to it. Gave his heart to it. Paul loved life and was grateful for it. But he understood that after his death, he would be with the Lord. And I think that we just need to be able to, we need to try to have that same perspective um, in view of our own life and the prospect of our death in the same way. But I think this means that we need to make sure that we are living our lives in service and devotion to the Lord in obedience to the commands of Jesus. Um, if something other than Jesus rules our life, then there's no way we could say like Paul that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's what we should want. That's what we want to be the case. Um, to enjoy life and to devote every minute of it to Christ and yet not be afraid to face death when it comes our time to die. Um, because that means being with the Lord. Now we know that after we die, we will meet the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul tells us. But also it says that if Jesus returns while we are, while we are still living, we will meet the Lord without facing death. Either way, we need to be prepared. I want to spend a few minutes discussing what the Bible teaches about the return of Jesus. Uh, we, as I mentioned before, we started talking about this about three weeks ago. We didn't really have time to, to cover everything. Um, and I just, I always am amazed and impressed by the way the, the, the apostles and the disciples were transformed after Jesus was, after they saw him. Uh, after he rose from the dead, because you know they were scared, they were frightened, they were frightened, they were hiding, um, and then something happened. They saw him having risen from the dead, and it transformed them completely. They were uh, They had many amazing experiences with Jesus, but seeing him rise from the dead, and of course then being empowered by the Holy Spirit, just changed everything. And I just think we should never forget that. All these miracles that Jesus did, there were eyewitnesses to them. And there was hundreds, there was more than 500 eyewitnesses to Je that saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. So and when we think about that, we should be motivated as they were and animated to really believe and, and have a, a stronghold in our faith. And I just want to read uh, from that passage in Acts 1 where it talks about Jesus getting taken away and rises to heaven. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come, will come in just the same way as you watched him, uh, as you watched him go into heaven. And again, Jesus is, they're seeing this, this amazing sight um, and how uh, motivating and amazing that was. And again, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be, again, a, a day like we have never experienced um, where we, when we who are still living see Jesus coming back uh, with the clouds and people, again, will be doing just like they were uh, in the past. And Jesus is going to return. In Matthew 24, 36 to 40 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So to be just as surprising and, and unexpected and unready, you know, so many people. But we'll be ready. Hopefully, we will be ready for that day when He returns. Again, neither Jesus nor the angels know when that day is going to be. Um, only the Father, and it's a day that everybody should be prepared for but they won't be. Um, sadly, everybody, every person in the world should be ready, but they won't be prepared. We need to be sure that we are ready and that we're, we're sure that our relationship is right with God and with everyone here, uh, that it is right. And the Bible says, uh, Matthew 24, 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And then looking at verses 30 to 31, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. It's just amazing uh, sight to, to experience, to see. Um, Jesus first came as a, as in a humble and quiet way as a baby. Um, but during the second coming, he's going to come in great power and glory with his angels. And like it says, there's going to be a great trumpet. The angels are going to gather us up, his people, from, all, from wherever we are. And again, there's going to be no doubt about who Jesus is. And, and you, know, you think about people who are somehow deceived into believing that Jesus has come back, or they have found Jesus, um, and they're following some person they believe to be Jesus. The Bible clearly tells us that every that we're all going to see him. Um, I didn't get to that scripture, but everyone's going to see him. We're going to know clearly that it's Jesus. So we should not be deceived by people who say they are Jesus or that Jesus has returned already. Another amazing thing is to think about that that there's a passage in Revelation that says the powerful, the rulers, the generals, all these great people are going to be trembling in fear and, uh, because they're not ready. And it says in Revelation 6, 6, 15 through 17, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And it's just amazing thing that whether you're great or small, we all need to be prepared for Jesus' return. So it doesn't matter and I, I mean, I really admire the talent and the ability of so many of the people that we see, whether it's an athlete, whether it's a, a politician, um, I do respect their abilities. Whether it's a musician, sometimes they produce great music, but they still need to be ready. 
no matter how God has blessed them with ability and talent and power, they still need to humble themselves before God and return, turn to Jesus for their salvation and be ready, whether they're great or small. So it's just a, it's just a really dramatic image to see people or, or, or imagine people who are uh, so terrified at the coming of Christ. They want the mountains and the rocks to hide them from his face. Um, and we, we hope that people will be prepared and that we'll, we'll be prepared. Revelations 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And again, this is the one that tells us clearly that everyone's going to see him, even those who killed him, who pierced him. And there's no way um, we should be deceived in any way about that. Everyone's going to see Christ, and it's really frightening to think about even the people who killed him are going to see him and know the mistake that they made. Um, Maybe people will be pleading for mercy. Um, but from the things I read, have read about in the Bible, the time for mercy when Jesus comes back will be over. You know, the time for mercy is now. The time for forgiveness is now. Um, and there's going to be a day when it's too late to receive that mercy that we all need. Um, and they're going to be confronted with the, uh, the innocent person that they, they crucified, the one who had no guilt, no sin. Um, and, you know, there's a passage in Matthew that's really, uh, I think when I first saw it, I was really uh, just kind of, just an amazing thing that was said. If you look at Matthew 27, 24, and 25, this is when Pilate saw, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, this is when he's presenting Jesus to the crowd, and he doesn't really want to crucify him, but he doesn't really have the uh, moral will to set him free. He says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Then all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And it's like... The, the people are saying, they're putting on themselves a blood curse, basically. They're saying that if this man is, in fact, innocent, and we are going ahead and killing him, let his punishment be on us. And that, that was just a, a very chilling thing, a terrible thing to put on yourself and to put on your children. Now, I definitely want to say that this was a Jewish mob but this does not mean and it does not justify us thinking that the Jews are the cause of his death um, or take the blame because we all take that responsibility because of our sins. But it was just, I think that was just a terrible thing for them to have said and to take it on themselves. Um, it is a curse um, and it's sad that they did it. Um, remember that Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. And because uh, his, his followers would have then, if it was, they would have fought uh, for, his, his, uh, for his kingdom on earth. So this is not our kingdom. This is not our home where we are now. And while we enjoy life, our time on, on earth is actually full of quite a bit of hardship oftentimes and difficulty. But it's just a place of testing and trial. But we look forward to a place that is peaceful where we'll forever be with God. And again, that's part of the hope of when Jesus returns. In Philippians 3.20, uh, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the execution of by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject things, all things to himself. Our bodies here kind of betray us, don't they? They kind of wear out. They get sick. They do a lot of things we don't wish they did. 
Um, they do some good things too, but our bodies wear out and they don't always operate the way we want. And this passage talks about the humble state of our bodies. But when Jesus returns, he's gonna transform our bodies and uh, into, his, into a body like his glor 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 glorified body. And I think we don't really understand, we can't understand the power of God, the power that he has to change us uh, completely and, 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 and equip us to live in eternity. Our bodies are not like that right now. But right now, God gives us the freedom to choose him, to willingly submit to him. But when he comes again, those who rejected him will have no choice then but to submit. But God knows those who have freely submitted to him and have obeyed him and is able to perfectly judge the hearts of people. Now, in this next passage, we learn a little bit more about the transformation that's going to take place. And this is what, what Paul says in uh, Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 57. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great passage. I mean, that's a great passage for us to think about. Our current bodies are, are perishable, uh, and so they have to be changed to be imperishable so they can last forever. Just as the kingdom that we're part of, the kingdom of God is going to last forever. And in the twinkling of an eye, it says, so quickly we will be changed. Um, the dead will be raised uh, with transformed bodies. Those who are alive will have their bodies changed instantly. And we can't understand the tremendous power of God, but that's what he's going to do. And through the Lord Jesus, we have victory over sin and death. And I just wanted to read one more scripture. That's from Revelation. Um, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he was done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So let us look forward to his return. And and do so with faithful confidence and never lose heart in serving our Lord Jesus. If you would like to come forward this afternoon and receive the prayers of the church, I ask you to do that when we stand. If you want to put on Christ in baptism, you can do that now as well. But it's just, I mean, most of this was just reading scriptures that talked about the coming of Christ. I just think it is so good for us to, to reflect on that and to remember the promises that he has made that we have to look forward to. Thank you. Let us stand and sing. We have been in the uh, Sunday morning class uh, out here. We have been studying... Uh, the book of Joshua. And last week, we uh, began studying and reading about the farewell speech of Joshua. And part of that is what Eric just read uh, to you from chapter 23 of Joshua. And I wanted to particularly focus on the part where Joshua says to the nation of Israel, 
So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God, which is verse 11. Um, take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Um, so what does that mean, this statement where he says, diligent heed, take diligent heed to yourselves? What does this mean? And it really means that they should um, be careful about themselves um, and be careful that they did not get enticed into worshiping false gods and following the sinful practices of the people who were already in that land. So he was urging them to be thoughtful and careful. Um, and for us, I think it, it, it applies really in the same way, or in a very similar way. And it means that we should pay attention to the way we are thinking uh, about things in our lives, how we are behaving, and pay careful attention to ourselves. Um, and do not be careless. Uh, it, it, oftentimes we can we can react, um, act and react without thinking, and without thinking, is this behavior or, or the way I'm thinking, is that consistent with God's expectations? And as human beings, God has given us the ability to reflect on ourselves and to make adjustments in our behavior. And we need to do that. That's what we must do if we're going to love and honor God. And throughout the Bible, um, we can find a lot of times where God will ask questions. And really those questions are rhetorical questions that God makes, um, to, to, he asks to make his people stop and think. Because God, of course, knows the answer. He's omnipotent, um, uh, omniscient, and he knows the answer. But he wants us to think about those things and to get a better understanding of ourselves and our situation and a better understanding of, of him, I think. So one of the, what I want to do in this lesson is to just go through a few of God's rhetorical questions. And part of this will be to see if you know where the question's coming from. So it'll be a little quiz. Um, and I'm only going to give you the question part, not the whole scripture initially. But really, God asked these rhetorical questions to help us reflect and think about, are we behaving rightly? Are we behaving in a way that loves and honors God? Um, so the first question is, why are you angry? Anybody remember where that came from? It's from, from Genesis. Anymore? It is from Genesis. That's the question that God, hmm? Cain? Cain and Abel, yes. It's the question that God directed to Cain when he was angry. And he was angry with his brother. And he really didn't have a good reason to be angry with his brother. And that scripture, that passage, Genesis 4, 6 through 7, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, you not, uh, will not your countenance be lifted up? So God asked this question, why are you angry to Cain? And gave Cain an opportunity to think about the way he was feeling. Why is he angry? Um, and to give him an opportunity to, to know he doesn't have to give in to that anger. And you remember, if you remember in that passage, it says to him, God says, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. So he gave him the opportunity. And uh, Cain refused to listen. And he killed his brother, Abel. So Cain shortened, you know, cut short Abel's life, and he ruined his own life. And how often have we seen that, where people react in anger and they, they hurt someone else, but they ruin their own lives as well. But how about us? Are we, you know, when we are angry, it would probably be a good thing, a great idea to ask ourselves, why am I angry? Why am I angry? Is it, is it righteous anger? I hope so. 
Or is it jealous anger, like the kind that Cain had? Because his brother was accepted, and God didn't like Cain's offering. So is it a jealous anger? Or are we angry because we're, there's something we're afraid of? And, you know, some of us are angry a lot. And we need to, we need to watch out for that. We need to ask ourselves why and examine ourselves as it relates to how we're feeling in that anger. James chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. See that? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So being angry all the time is not a good thing. And we need to be careful with anger. And we need to examine it. Why am I angry? The second rhetorical question is that, that God asked, was why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's really two questions. But why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know where that question came from? What? In a boat. It was in a boat. <laughs> Jesus in, his, in the storm. They, there was a storm going on. Um, the occasion, uh, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat in the sea when a storm was stirred up and the boat began to sink because the waves were breaking over the boat and the water was filling up the boat. Jesus was asleep and the disciples were terrified and they woke Jesus up and said, don't you care about us? We are about to die. Jesus calmed the storm and ask them that question, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I think that, again, that's a good question for us. As we go through whatever we go through, or, what, or when we're called upon to do something, um, or have to face something, why are we afraid? Do we have no faith? Do we, do we live fearfully? Uh, or do we live with confidence and faith in God. And it's really important to, for us to, to not live fearfully, um, but realizing in, in, that God is reliable and faithful. If you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Who, what will man do to me? So we need to take that to heart. Um, we need to give diligent heed to ourselves as it relates to being fearful. Do we really believe that God is our helper and that he will never leave us? Uh, we, must, we, we really need to trust God and feel secure in his care. And then we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be afraid of anything. And one of the things I, I'm very convinced of is that being afraid leads to many bad decisions and sins. We're afraid. You know, even the idea of missing out on something, um, we're afraid of that. And that's something that marketers use. They, they, they use the fear of missing out to try to get us to buy their product because we think they want to convey this message that if you don't have this, you're going to miss out. You're, going to, you're not going to have any friends. You're going to be a loser. Um, and your life will be incomplete. And there's so many forms that that takes. And when you think about the temptation that was presented to Eve in the garden, it was really the same idea, that you're going to miss out on being like God. This, eat this, and you'll be like God. And she went for it. But that type of, that type of fear, I think, is very common for us, that we don't want to miss out. We're afraid that everybody else is having a great time, and we're missing out. And we really are afraid of that. And then there's other things of just having to do something we're not used to doing. Um, and it's understandable to be concerned, but we need to have confidence 
and not be afraid of the things that God calls us to do, but to, but to face those things, ask God for his help. And uh, it, 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 I just think when I look at nations and around the world, that a lot of these wars and a lot of things that people do is because they're afraid. And that I'm going to do something to these people before they do it to me. And it's just, and we, and you can take it on a, all sorts of levels that fear is driving sinful behavior, but we need to realize that God is our helper. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to desert us. He's going to take care of us. So let us not give in to fear. We need to examine our fears and see, do they really even make sense? And remember and reflect on our faith in Jesus. The third rhetorical question, and there's a lot of them. Um, we're only going to cover five. Um, this is the third one. So we're almost done. Um, you might have trouble with this one, but the third one is, where were you? Where? No. Job. That's right. It may have been Lazarus, too, but I don't know. But uh, uh, it's Job. This is from Job 38, verse 4. And it, the, the verse says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? It's when God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And we know Job has been suffering, and he doesn't understand why. And he knows that something's wrong, and that God... Uh, and the implication is that he's saying, God has made a mistake here. I don't deserve this. This is not right. And God, God knows what we go through. God understands what we go through. But Job was demanding, essentially, an explanation from God about why he made this really bad decision um, and why he allowed Job to suffer like this. And the point of this question was to help Job to realize that he was in really no position to challenge God about the rightness of his decisions and the judgments that God makes. God is wise enough and smart enough to create the earth and set up all the processes that's involved in to sustain life on earth and to take care of us. And, God, and Job needed to be made to understand that he should accept and never forget the wisdom of God. Um, and we can have the same, we can have the same problem um, when we don't like what God has said or we don't want to do what God has said um, or we feel this something shouldn't be happening to us and then we want to, we want to question God's righteousness and God's wisdom. But we need, to take, we need to take the heart that God is righteous and that he loves us even when we can't understand what is happening at the moment. Um, we need to understand that, you know, it's possible that God's ideas may be different than ours and that, you know, he may not agree with us. And he doesn't always agree with us. And that's really difficult for people to for us, I think, to accept that our thoughts and our ideas about the way things ought to be, and in fact, what is right and what is wrong, is not, we need to try to line up with God, but we don't always naturally come to the same conclusions that God does. So we need to take that to heart and maybe ask ourselves, you know, where was I? I mean, did I have the wisdom to even touch this, this, this thing that I'm concerned about? Um, and realized God was there from the beginning, and he was involved a long time before we were, and that he has done a good job. When we look at the history and the examples that we have, and even, even dealing with one another, kind of on a human level, we need, to, we need to consider our involvement in different activities. So... We, can, you know, we may want to ask ourselves and realize, I wasn't in the beginning where, when this, this thing started or when this activity started, 
and maybe some other people have been involved much longer than I. So while I think we want to bring in new people, I think we also want to respect those who have gone on, who've been doing it for a while, and know more about the history and what's happening in a particular area. So we can work with people who have been experienced, as well as people who are new, realizing we don't know at all. And there's a lot for us that we can learn from one another, even in that sense. The fourth rhetorical question that God asked is, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Do you remember who went, what the occasion was for that question? It, God asked that question to one of his greatest prophets. Was that right here, Elijah? It's Elijah. It was Elijah uh, from 1 Kings. Isn't this fun? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 13. One of his greatest prophets. Um, Elijah had just had a great victory over 450 prophets of the Baals or the Baals, uh, false, uh, false gods. And God used Elijah to demonstrate God's power in an incredible display, and Elijah killed these prophets, these false prophets. The only problem was that these 450 prophets belonged to, you know who? A bad queen. Began Jezebel. All right, Jackson. Um, these, were Je these were Jezebel's uh, prophets. And she was a zealous idol worshiper. And she told, she sent word to Elijah that what you did to these prophets of mine, I think that she says by the end of the day, but she says, I'm going to do that to you. And Elijah, having just had this tremendous victory through God, was terrified. And he was, a, he was so afraid. And he ran. And he ended up hiding in a cave. Elijah was depressed. He was overcome with fear and exhaustion. It was so bad that Elijah asked God to take his life. Just let me die here, God. Let me die now. I've had enough. And he said to God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one of your prophets that are left. That wasn't true. But that's what Elijah thought. So he hid in this cave. However, God was not done with Elijah yet. As he hid in this cave, God came to him and asked in 1 Kings 19.9, what are you doing here, Elijah? The cave, wanting to die, wanting to hide, that was not what God, that's not what God's plan was for Elijah. That was not his intent and expectation. So he came to him, if you remember, and that's, there's twice it happens, a couple of different verses, where God comes to him and just whispers to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So we need to examine ourselves sometimes, I think, and ask ourselves that same question. Now, maybe we're not hiding in the cave, but maybe we're someplace where we shouldn't be. Okay. And we need to ask ourselves, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Because it may not be a good place to be. And if we're going to love, remember these are all related to trying to examine ourselves to make sure that we're loving and honoring God the way we should and the way Joshua was urging the people of Israel to do. What am I doing here? Are these people, are these the people, are these really the people I should be hanging out with? Am I actually helping them come to God? Or are they dragging me away from God? What am I doing? And, and I was even thinking about this from thinking about college days. That sometimes you'd be doing things that you shouldn't have done that really weren't even fun. Um, they were just stuff other people were doing. They were, they were really kind of destructive to you, and, and they weren't good things, and we, we need to think about that. What am I doing here? 
And maybe that's a good place to be, but maybe it's not a good place to be. And we need to evaluate and ask ourselves, what am I doing here? And maybe we need to ask one another that too, if we can help each other get on a better path. Um, so we need to remember that. What are you doing here? Is it, is it the right place to be? The fifth and final rhetorical question for today is, why do you persecute me? Saul. They, Jesus, the risen Lord, that's in Acts chapter 9, verses 3, uh, three through 5, um, where Jesus asked that question to Saul because he is arresting and killing Christians. And Saul didn't realize that, that he was killing the people that belonged to the Son of God. Um, Saul, who, who became known as the Apostle Paul, was zealous for God. But out of ignorance, he thought he was serving God by killing Christians. Now, hopefully none of us have killed Christians, but did I hear somebody confess to that? <laughs> hopefully we haven't killed Christians, but it's possible that we, through our own ignorance or our lack of knowledge, that we may hold beliefs that are actually contrary to the teaching of Christ or opposed to the truth that he taught. So it's important for us to really be good students and thoughtful disciples of Jesus Christ so that in ignorance we don't adopt beliefs or behaviors that actually oppose the work of Christ. And that may seem strange, but that's something that, that is written about in the Bible. Those types of things where people begin believing, Christians begin believing and practicing things that are completely false as it relates to, to Christ. And one of the examples is addressed by Paul um, in Galatians where the people, he calls it a different gospel. That the people begin believing or, or they're, they're tempted into to following salvation based on legalistic rules, following rules and works. Um, and he actually says in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 68, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another. Only there is some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So Paul is actually saying that they should be accursed if even an angel preaches a different gospel. And they were following legalistic rules for salvation rather than relying on faith in Christ. And that is something that's very easy for us to do because we, and I think it's a good thing, we love the Bible and we want to follow the Bible. We want to do everything it commands, but we have to realize that we're not saved because we're so good and that we follow the rules so well. Uh, we're saved because of the blood of our, our, of our faith and confidence in the blood of Christ. And they, Paul was, telling them that this is another gospel. It's not the true gospel if you're doing this. So sometimes we may, be, we may need to ask ourselves, am I really following or am I actually opposing Christ? Another issue, another area of concern that we can end up be, becoming materialistic, um, believing that money and wealth are evidence of God's favor. And we need to be really careful about that. Um, Especially because when we look at the Israelites, they were given that promise. They were given the promise of physical, material wealth and health if they obeyed God. And it was something that was promised to them by God as the people, uh, by his chosen people, Israel. And it was really under the covenant of Moses um, that that was promised. But that's not, we can't, that's not uh, what we're told. And we should not start thinking that if, if a, wealth is evidence of righteousness. But it can, it can happen, and I think it's, it's very natural for us to fall into that. James addressed that specifically in the example in James chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When we become, uh, when we behave like that, and it's so easy to do, um, it becomes evident that we don't love people the way Christ did. We dishonor, dishonor one person and show favoritism to another. And we may actually become those who hinder people from coming to Christ. So we just need to be careful. Um, and again, uh, I mean, we need to be careful regarding that. And that third example related to this idea of actually opposing Christ is just that we can, we can deceive. There are those who deceive believers into thinking that we can use our Christian freedom as a cover for sin and self-indulgence. We start off honoring Christ, but due to the deception, we end up uh, denying his, his power. And Peter warns about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. Um, These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. For they have escaped the corrupt, for if, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and again, be, again, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off than, than the end, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. So these are people who had come to Christ, who had believed in him, but had been mis, mis, really mis, manipulated by people into thinking that there's the, they can participate in these sins and they're still going to be all right. And again, that teaching is opposing Christ, maybe not directly persecuting Jesus, but harming his cause and harming his people. So we have to make sure that none of us um, fall for any of these errors and that we need to be careful about what we do and what we believe in and really ask ourselves these questions to try to make sure that we are truly loving God in the way that he asks us to do in a way that's going to be right in his sight. That's my lesson. Um, I want us to all really think about um, that this is a time where if there's, if there's something that we want to ask for prayers, we can come together and you can come forward as we sing in a moment and be prayed for by the church. If there's anyone here who wishes to become a Christian and put on Christ, you can do that now as we stand and sing the song of invitation.